double Elvis. Dear young rocker, it's okay to feel restless and succumb to what feels like a life of endless motion. You'll bounce around a lot and feel like no one knows you except the people on the internet or the people who watch you sing, the people you pour your soul out to from a stage, the ones who hear your music from thousands of miles away, the ones you think you'll never meet and maybe someday will, decades later. You'll spot the people who knew you, the people who loved you, the ones who had been lost through time and space, a connection shared through telephone wires, late at night for years, a connection that slowly dissipated. You'll spot them on subway trains decades later as you're lost getting on the wrong subway car in New York City, sitting in the only empty seat next to her. The girl who you spent all of your nights with gabbing and laughing and crying into a cordless telephone. She already knows all your secrets. You whispered them to her in an AIM chat box back when it cost too much to text someone. You'll spot them hundreds of miles away at a New Year's Eve party as the clock strikes midnight. Confetti falls as you stand in the middle of a crowd and turn to your left to see him, the boy who got you through it, the death, the grief, the loneliness of the road. Your eyes both meet as he smiles and you hear your name for the first time, not through any phone speaker, but over music and in person. Happenstance is the beauty in life that keeps us going and waiting and loving. You're never alone. Even the loneliness and disconnection you feel follows you and it feels like no one ever truly knows you. And the strangers who listen to your music, those who feel a million miles away, will one day be close and real. The internet is both fake and very real. Young Rocker. We were what felt like hours away from any highways or signs of civilization. There was an emptiness that didn't just ring out through the leaves falling throughout the abandoned dirt roads, but it hung there in the air, filling our lungs as we drove deeper into the woods. It made everything feel far. Starting high school in a new city was hard enough, but starting high school in the middle of nowhere 
I wasn't sure how I would survive it. I watched as the view from my passenger seat window turned more desolate. I was shocked to find out I was able to pick up the college radio station I loved listening to in the city. It's a hit by Rilo Kiley started playing as we pulled onto yet another empty street that led us to the dirt road where I would spend my first semester of high school. Excited to hear a new single not yet released from their new album, I rolled the window down and rested my chin alongside the open car window and listened carefully, trying to hold on and remember every second of this moment. What a new beginning felt like. That's enough of that sad shit. My mother turned the radio off, which left us with nothing but the sound of bumpy gravel beneath her car, never intended to be trekked off-road in the middle of South Georgia woods, through a path of trees that led us to our new house, to my mother's new boyfriend's house, where I would now be living. This was my mother's second boyfriend since the divorce, and I had only met him twice before this. I stepped slowly through the front door, past the boxes of all of our things, and was struck by his choice of decor. Dead deer mounted throughout the house in every room, and old high school football trophies in every frame of your eyesight, no matter where you stood in the house. Yep, I was scouted to play for the NFL in college, but I threw my knee out. Yeah, I would have gone pro. I never want to be an adult who harps over the what-ifs in life and then scatters the remnants on display throughout my living room, well past the acceptable period of mourning. His two sons stood to greet us in the hall, looking like twin characters from throughout the looking glass. They stared at me, mocking in unison, making fun of my hair, my clothes, and the fact that I was vegan. One son was blonde, thin, sickly, rail-like with buck teeth and a bowl cut. The other had dark brown hair and the silhouette of a beach ball. They looked nothing alike and took turns mercifully making fun of whatever they could. I usually just ignored their existence and rolled my eyes whenever they spoke. I was a 14-year-old vegan who just moved to the middle of nowhere, where I knew no one. And this was my welcome. My mother took me to the back of the house in a room in an attic, far away from everyone else. We thought you would be happy up here. At first I felt like a castaway, in a room tucked away, hidden, far away, like something they didn't want to be seen. But I then saw the appeal. It was like having my own little apartment, a duplex above the kitchen with its own private entrance. When I was in seventh grade, my loneliness felt dreadful and I cried endlessly over it. By eighth grade, I began to feel understood and unalone in my loneliness. Starting high school, the loneliness in me were almost inseparable twin flames best friends at this point. We had a rough start, but a comfortable and safe relationship now. I didn't care if no one read the books I read or 
listen to the same music as me. I could still be friends with people and have my loneliness. And this attic apartment felt like the perfect space for us to finally cohabitate together. Our first apartment in which our private and intimate relationship could finally bloom. Most of my friends at this point were online, so I didn't mind the loneliness. I had just saved up all year to buy a refurbished acoustic electric guitar. The attic apartment felt almost like a three-month-long writing residency in the woods. I spent all of my time writing and recording songs every day, reading books, writing music, and sharing it online on our family computer that weighed as much as cement blocks. I would record songs on the default sound recorder on our computer with a $20 computer mic you plugged into the audio jack. One mic, one track, one take, and it sounded exactly how I wanted it to. Like faraway tapes recorded in a bedroom or microphones thrown down hallways. Like all the college radio music that I loved listening to the most. This attic apartment cohabitating with my loneliness, this is where the first music I ever made started to take form. My mother's boyfriend suggested I go to the local church where they hosted shows and had hardcore bands play to try and make some friends since I was new in town. I was there. I met Jonathan. He was homeschooled and a few years older than me. He had floppy blonde hair and dressed similar to the boy version of what I dressed like. Button-up floral shirts under tweed band t-shirts with khaki brown corduroy pants. He and his parents just got done living on some sort of mission work ship for the last few years and his skin was pale like milk. I had never met a boy in real life who had liked all the things I liked. We both liked Bill and Sebastian. We both loved Pulp, an Eisler set, Red House painters. He introduced me to Wilco and the replacements, and he gave me a mix CD. It's funny the places you'll meet someone who makes you feel less alone in life. Someone who will become your best friend in places you least expect it. I had accepted my loneliness at this point as my confidant, my partner, but I would have never expected this. Something to challenge that relationship and bring it into the light of reality for my digital escape. Neither of us were religious. The local church was just where the kids went at night to hang out. I learned that in some places, being the new kid held mystery. A mystery I didn't like or want or ever feel like I could live up to. Rumors or stories I would hear going around. Some kids would say they were even afraid of me. But eventually the projections would settle in somewhere between the rumors and the truth as I started to make friends. I was always the new girl in town, sitting alone at lunch, reading my books. And eventually, a boy and his friends sat next to me, and they never left. Hey, I'm Patty. 
A bushy, red-headed boy sat down next to me at lunch, and a handful of others followed behind him. He told me John Mayer was his hero, and he played guitar. His friends were mostly Christian, but some of our favorite bands overlapped, and we both liked the band May. This wasn't like my last school, or even the one before that. Everyone was nice, and nice to each other. The school was brand new and only had 9th and 10th graders, so everyone knew everyone else. But no one knew me. Eventually, kids found out that I made music and had a show booked. I would hear all types of rumors. Nadia, the new girl with short, bushy curls for hair who makes music. Nadia, the new shy girl who used to spend her time reading books alone while eating lunch. Nadia, the new funny girl, outgoing when I wasn't being shy. Some class periods saw the best of me, and others saw versions of me that almost never spoke at all. Nadia, the girl who knows lots of facts, always the first to raise my hand in class. And the teachers often made comments about the books I kept, held like Bibles carrying to my chest throughout the halls between my classes. Nadia, the new hot girl. This one always rang funny to me, and I couldn't even imagine who would have spoken such a thing out loud in earshot of someone else. But nonetheless, it all managed to telephone its way back to my ears by last period gym. I didn't feel like any of those things. I was just always the outsider, looking in. And by the time I felt close enough, comfortable enough, safe enough, and loved enough, it was always time to leave, for one reason or another. It was nice to finally have friends at school, and a friend outside of school who I felt like understood me. Jonathan and I would drive around town, going to bookstores and music stores, listening to songs on cassettes in his car. With my first big show coming up, he offered to drive me. My mother didn't want to make the drive two hours away from where we were living now, so she let him take me. He had just gotten his license that week. Okay, have fun. My mom waved us off as we loaded up the car with my guitar and left my house. I watched as he drove with two hands gripping the wheel as tightly as he could, ten and two, and he moved the steering wheel side to side quickly, like how characters drive in old black and white silent cartoons. This was a time to be too young, to be scared of a random boy a boy who just got his license that week, driving you two hours away to take you to play your first show. While the car shook and sputtered, making louder sounds than I'd ever heard any car make before, I didn't care how we were getting to my first show. I was just ecstatic that I was going to get to play. When we finally arrived at the venue, there weren't many people there but it didn't matter how many showed up. I was finally going to get to play. I had my outfit picked out for weeks, a brown A-line skirt from The Gap, tank top and cardigan and my Mary Janes. 
My mother had watched as I tried on three outfits that I picked out until I finally narrowed it down the night before. There were a few people I didn't know who had come to see me play, which was exciting. I wasn't sure how my music was circulating online at this point, but it was. I shared my music with online friends in New Jersey. It would make its way to strangers in New York, which would be sent to someone in California, then Oregon, then Montana, then Philly. It was sometimes almost impossible to find the line back to the first direct message of music I sent their aim. That's how music got out back then. You would connect with someone in a chat forum, then get their AIM address, then talk to them for a few hours or weeks or days, then do this thing called direct connect. The person would have to accept your direct connect, and then you can send them a file. Sometimes the selfie took an hour, and one music track could easily take an entire day. You couldn't chat with the person or respond until the Direct Connect media had fully loaded onto the chat form. Files done. So if you wanted to hear someone's music, you had to really want to hear it. Because it meant cutting off communication with the rest of your chat world for what could be up to an entire day. Texting cost 50 cents a text if your parents didn't have an almost unaffordable, unlimited cell phone plan. And cell phone calls were charged by the minute. So AIM was your only form of communication sometimes, with friends even a few miles away. I nervously stepped on the stage, closed my eyes, and started to sing. I sang with my eyes closed the entire time. It was a feeling I didn't expect. Nervousness. Fumbling. Should I talk in between songs? Do I even say who I am? Making speeches or singing in front of anyone was something I wasn't used to. At this point, I had only sung in my quiet little attic apartment alongside my loneliness, the only audience I had ever had. It went well enough. Everyone was super supportive when I finished my set. Jonathan and I packed up my guitar and left for the two-hour drive back home. I asked him if we could take the longer way home, to drive on the interstate that cut through the city. I wanted to drive with the windows down, see the city lights at night, and take in the high from my performance, with a sense of peace and stillness. We were just two kids. With the windows down, I watched as the lights from the distance started to come into focus as we drove down the highway that divided the city in half. I stared up at the buildings, buildings that were older than me, larger than me. They had a life and history of their own and were still awake in the middle of the night, just like me. I looked over at Jonathan and I told him, one day I'm gonna live in the city and play music here, and make this place my home. It's everything I've ever wanted. I want to live in Atlanta.
the loneliness I came home to every night started to dissipate in my little apartment as I saw the possibility of playing more shows and one day living in the city becoming a reality. In the loneliness I used to carry with me, I started leaving at the door as I left for school in the mornings. And eventually, my loneliness started to fade away. But just as I started to find my place, my fun, my own joy, it was time to leave again. This time, it was because we found out my mother's boyfriend lied about everything. The entire fabric of his existence was a fabrication. He lied about owning the house. It was his parents. He lied about having a job and going to work every day. Instead, he stayed home all day long and looked at porn on the computer. I sat between the two of them during their argument as it all unfolded. He tried to say that I was the one looking at porn during the day while I was at school. I sat in silence and went into shock. I just sat there, frozen. My mother shook me, but I couldn't move or speak until eventually she slapped me across the face, unsure of how else to snap me back to myself and the reality I was in. It was the first time I realized that someone could lie so much about everything and then blame you. As a child, how do you even defend yourself? I had never even masturbated at this point in my life. I had never even kissed a boy or even thought about sex. And my mother knew he was lying right away. Blaming me was the breaking point for her. And we left. Come on, Nadia, get your things. We're leaving. We drove in silence for 30 minutes to the nearest gas station. And the song Landslide came on the radio. And we both lost it, bursting into tears. I gotta get out of here. I can't take it anymore. I'm living in the fucking sticks. My mother said, and for once, we were on the same page. We moved out immediately. I went to live with a friend for a few months until the end of the semester, and my mother moved back without me to the town where we had last lived. Her boyfriend eventually tried to get her back years later by saying he had stage four cancer. She believed him at first until she called around to all the hospitals he said he was getting treatment at where they confirmed there was no patient there with his name. I guess he forgot my mother worked in a hospital and that lie was easy for her to look into. This wasn't uncommon. Men lying about entire lives fabricating not just circumstances but entire worlds to do anything to get my mother back. Anything to try to keep her. Men breaking into our house in the middle of the night, putting trackers on her phone, 
Stealing her signature gold butterfly necklace she wore every day since the day I was born to keep as a trophy or keepsake after she'd leave them. Like how lovers exchange locks of hair, except these items, all the things in my mind that defined her, were always taken without her consent. There were never any even trades, and it was something we would eventually have in common. The pieces of us people took to save, to hold on to, to cope with the loss of losing us. All is fair in love and war, I suppose, but the casualties usually resulted in heirlooms or gold necklaces or every fifth baby photo of me that spanned from the year of 1992 to 1994, suddenly disappearing, held hostage in the spines of books or drawers we'd never see. The magnetism my mother possessed only cursed half of my DNA. So to be honest, I can't fathom possessing the full strands that made up the fabric of her existence. She raised me with a sense of blunt awareness on where our shared power lied, a type of shrouded mystery, as if explaining some sort of magic, but also keying me into the genes of the cursed history of all the women who came before us. She taught me to never be too trusting and always be aware of your surroundings that men will tell you anything to get what they want. We would pick apart scenarios together, analyzing the conversations we had or witnessed, the body language, the ways in which people spoke. She was a social scientist at heart, not nearly as vapid as she ever put on. During our time apart, I pierced my lip, which immediately got stuck in my braces. I got infected and I had to take it out. But for one week, I felt like the coolest kid in school. Once finals were over, I was back to another town to start at another school, my second semester of my freshman year. Moving back to the house we'd last lived in was easy. I went back to a school where everyone continued to think I was Anna where most of my classes took place in trailers. Teachers refused to teach because the kids wouldn't stop talking. We're flicking around paper footballs. We would all end up failing our Friday exams every week. But one thing had changed. I started playing more shows and met more people. I lived closer to the city and closer to other suburban venues. I loved how simple it was living in the country, how nice everyone was, but I missed the rowdiness and grunginess and the music and attending shows weekly. Now that I was playing regularly, I started hanging out with some people I had been talking to online. My mother dropped me off at venues. She'd scream out the passenger window before driving away, informing me at the last minute. There was one time she left town and I couldn't find a ride home. I had to sleep outside in the snow with six other kids whose parents had also forgot about them. We were all left behind, three boys and three girls. It was the first time in years that it snowed in Georgia. We had all gathered around looking up at the beauty of the flakes of frozen water gliding through the air past the streetlights. We sat in silence staring up, 
completely awestruck, like witnessing a sudden eclipse or a once-in-a-lifetime event, you know you'll never forget. A moment from nature that makes time stand still and everything goes completely silent until the reality hits you. I was wearing a thin polyester vintage dress, black patent leather heels and a thin, almost see-through summer cardigan. We huddled up to keep warm, shaking under a blanket we found outside and someone's coat we'd opened up to cover us, trying our best to fall asleep, if only for a moment, hoping to forget where we were and that the morning sun would come as quickly as it could. Someone's mother gave us a ride home, but not until noon the next day. I sat in silence while the boy's mother told him that they'd have a talk about it later. About me later. He didn't make a single move on me. To this day, I'm still thankful we kept each other safe and warm and none of the boys tried anything on the girls. We were all just looking out for one another. A bunch of hardcore, stranded, abandoned punks and me in my vintage dress. First semester of sophomore year, I changed schools again. My third high school in one calendar year. But this time, this is where I wanted to be. At an AP art high school in a school that had its own art building the size of my last school. This is where I was sure I would make my closest friends. This is what I'd always dreamed of and had begged my mother to allow me to go for the last two years. Going to a school where everyone was just like me. Except upon getting there, I realized they weren't. It was clicky. And instead of feeling like I fit in immediately, I didn't at all. And what felt like once peacefully eating lunch alone without a care if anyone joined me, now felt daunting in a school so big. I was happy you could pick what classes you wanted and what your concentration was. There was over 20 art classes to choose from. I tested into senior level British literature courses and was accepted into a senior level anatomy and physiology class. This school fed every desire and every intellectual itch I had ever had and dreamed of. I sat in my first period ceramics class. I didn't know anyone yet, but this was the first time I showed up to a school as the new kid and some people knew who I was. I was working on our first assignment building a teapot, and I heard someone ask the tallest boy in class three tables down from me. Hey, what are you listening to? Her. And he turned around and pointed to me. And half the class turned around to stare back. Her. I'm listening to her music. The new girl. This was the most uncomfortable moment of my life. I had just turned 15, and this is when it started. 
This was after I'd posted my songs on MySpace and for a short period of time was the number one independent female folk artist in the Southeast. This is when I started to get booked more often to open up sold out gigs at venues and play in different suburban bars. This is when I started selling at least $100 in handmade CDs at every show. Strangers in other cities would mail me cash to send them out whatever CD I was currently working on, burned onto a disc with handwritten Sharpie and whatever cover I designed in MS Paint, printed off and folded into a CD sleeve. This is when I got signed by an independent label from out of state and got booked to open for the Mountain Goats, a tour that ultimately got canceled. And in a rage of pure 15-year-old diva-ship, I fired my label and claimed, fuck the Mountain Goats forever. I'll never listen to them or buy another one of their records for as long as I live. I pacified myself with the reminder that I was making more money as an independent artist anyways. So any disappointment I felt from the tour being canceled was canceled out by my arrogance and rage from the lack of support from my label. Shortly after, I got picked up by a manager in Atlanta who was signed to a branch of Columbia or something. He had seen one of my shows and wanted to start booking me in bars in the city. He wanted to take me under his wing and show me off to his label and all the different recording engineers, bar owners, and bookers in Atlanta. He picked me up in the suburbs an hour away on his vintage Honda motorcycle and drove me into the city to show me around and play my new single for all the bookers downtown. We hit 80 miles per hour on the freeway and I never thought I'd survive the trek into the city. But I was having the time of my life. Yo, she's like fucking Paul McCartney, man. Yo, play that song for him, living on by. Play, play that song for him. This is when he booked me to open up for Jacob Dylan at Smith's Old Bar. This is when random men started showing up at my high school, asking around for me. Peeking around, sneaking from room to room in hopes of finding me. I would hear from girls in my classes, telling me some older looking guy named Chris or Alex was looking for me. I would immediately log into my MySpace, sifting through the different messages, comparing photos like some sort of police sketch, asking for detailed descriptions of freckles or facial hair or chin shape, so I knew who to block or who to keep an eye out for at my next show. This only happened twice, but that was two times too many to make things ever feel normal for a young, newly 15-year-old girl. This is when I started getting emails from people all over the world, at least a handful of messages every day, reaching out saying they'd heard my music. Some through friends, some on random college radio stations in other cities, others on Pure Volume or MySpace. It was bizarre to feel like I was living in two different worlds. I was now attending my dream high school where I thought I'd finally find my place, where I'd be in a space I finally wanted to be in for years and make friends with people I had always wanted to know. I thought the effortlessness of making new friends like at my last school would be 
even easier here, but somehow it was harder than ever. I wasn't just the other at another school at this point. It felt like I was now the other in my own life. Until one day, I opened an email from someone who would change everything. Dear Young Rocker, Season 4. We've got 12 episodes coming this season. Check back every Wednesday for new episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to share your own Young Rocker experience, you can follow me on Instagram at Nadia Marie Forever. You can also follow us at Dear Young Rocker and at Double Elvis on Instagram. This season of Dear Young Rocker is written and hosted by me, Nadia Marie. Dear Young Rocker was created by and is executive produced by Chelsea Erson. The show is executive produced by Jake Brennan, Brady Sadler, and Carly Carioli for Double Office. Script editing on this episode by Chelsea Erson and James Sullivan. Production by Sean Cahalan and Leah Totoris. Music for this episode was composed and performed by me, Nadia Marie. You can check out my music, Nadia Marie, on all streaming platforms. Thanks. We'll see you next week.